You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. It's good to see everybody here today on this beautiful day. I want to thank Pastor Ben for filling in for us last week as we were on vacation last week. It was hot. It was humid. It was fun. I told people I found out it is confirmed. I'm part human, part solar panel. But uh, it is good to be back and uh, see your faces today. We're going to continue on in our series called Luke, Settled Truth for Unsettling Times. And uh, we've been addressing a variety of themes inside the book of, of Luke. And it's challenging because he doesn't necessarily list it the way that we write today. And so you have to kind of scan the whole book of Luke to kind of pick up the emphasis of what he's addressing as far as themes, and that's gonna be one of those topics today. In fact, I'm gonna be addressing two themes today, not just one, I'm gonna be addressing two inside the book of, of Luke. So we're gonna read two passages of scripture, and you're gonna think there's absolutely no way that these verses are related to a sermon, but how many have confidence your pastor can get it there? Yeah. All right, let's everybody stand for the reading of the word, if you would. The first story, we're gonna just touch a couple verses, Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 42. Let's read this together. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Then another story, Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. We're picking it up in the middle of the story. A centurion has asked Jesus to come and heal his servant. And on those way there, the servant has died. And so this is where we're picking up the story as the centurion has approached Je or sent message to Jesus. Let's read. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that we can... Have not only our minds open, but our hearts open. And I pray that as these things are shared today, Jesus, that it helps us to function as the followers of you as you intended us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 You can be seated. So as we're looking at today's message, I want to just talk about a little bit of the themes that we have saw inside the book of, of Luke, and I'm going to be telling you here in a minute what today's theme is about. We've talked about the sacred of, sacredness of life from Luke chapter 1 and 2. We talked about a new dimension of God's activity that was going to be outside the temple. We talked about spiritual development, obedience, his theme on discipleship, his theme on healing, 
And then uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about his emphasis on stewardship related to money, possessions, and talents. The scriptures that we read today, number one, you'll see that we talked about Elizabeth. And it says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She began to prophesy. And the second thing that you'll read is about a miracle that happened with a centurion. And Jesus said this, I have not seen such great... Uh, great faith in all of Israel as I've seen in the centurion by the way he was a Roman he was a leader in the occupying army of that nation at that particular time and so we're going to look at two things today in this gospel of Luke we don't see it because of how he threads it through the gospel he addresses the issue of racial discrimination and the role of women notice how still it just got in the room and you're thinking, Pastor, one of those is enough, and you're going to tackle both of those in the same message at the same time. And it's like, yeah, because I'm just going to preach the Bible, not the newspaper. <laughs> Makes it real simple if I just stick with the scriptures. So that's what we're doing today. And one of the challenges, because so, one of the things that I often hear is this, uh, just to kind of let you know, we are, are diverse in this congregation, and we also have women who serve on the pastoral team. Uh, we call them pastors. We have them on our board of administration. We have them on the elders, and they serve in every capacity that anybody else can serve in this church. And some of the comments that I get from people is this. When they start getting familiar with the bridge, they'll say, well, it's nice to see that you're such a progressive pastor. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, so theology is now subject to whether you're progressive or not, I thought, well, you know, I'm not trying to be progressive. I'm just trying to be biblical. That's where you say amen. amen. Okay. Just try to, yeah. I, mean, I didn't go, well, how can I be progressive? No, I'm just saying, what's, what's the biblical stance on this? And so many issues, people, oh, well, I appreciate how you're so, you're conservative you. Well, I wasn't trying to be conservative. I was just trying to preach the scripture. Okay. It's not like I go to the Bible and go, all right, I have this outcome that I got to have. Now, what scriptures can I play with to get me there? No, it's just the opposite. We all, listen, I come to a church, and I want you to. I come to a church that I know is going to challenge me. I want a church that t t tells me something that today I did not know. I want something that says, hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? I, I, want, I want to be shown scripture that doesn't always take me to the realm of comfort, comforting. I want, a, 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 I want the Bible teaching to be able to take me to areas of discomfort. Okay, So here's, here's a scripture that is for your pastor that comes straight from the scripture. Everybody read this with me. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and... So I have two things there that the Bible tells me. Number one is this. I'm not supposed to be ashamed of a view that the Bible has that may not be popular in culture. I'm not supposed to go, oh, yeah, I'm not preaching that because that's just not going to go well today. You know, this is that climate and the season of life where, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I, you know, I don't want to stick my neck out there because I know how, my, how much my email is going to load up or I'm going to get people just angry and mad. And, you know, I just don't want to go there. So we're just going to skip. No, it says... I'm not supposed to be ashamed of a biblical view. The second thing is this. It also tells me I'm supposed to correctly handle the word of truth. So that tells me this. I need to be confident and I should be 
able to relay to you not just what it says, but why it says that. We are one of the most educated cultures that have ever walked planet Earth. It's not enough to just pronounce to people today. Now you have to say, I can give you the pronouncement, but can I tell you how we got there? And it goes back to this. Text, okay, without context leads to pretext. So people want to say, what's the context of that verse so that I know, that I can be confident that what you're proclaiming is what the Bible intended so give me the background, give me the insight. So I'm going to tell you today, you're probably, I know I'm known more as a teaching pastor, you're probably going to get even more teaching today than you've ever really cared to learn, okay? But I mean, I, I can tell you this, this, this uh, I, I teach for one of the uh, colleges online uh, for people going into ministry, and I just, I just did the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, segment and just wrapped that up with, uh, with 12 students going into the ministry. And one of the themes that we talked about was the Gospel of Luke, okay? So some of the stuff I'm just extracting right out, right out of the teaching of the course, okay? So this is not like something new. This is what I teach others who are going into the ministry when I'm given that opportunity to get into this particular topic today, okay? So I, the reason is that I want you to know the why. It's easy just to say the what, but I need to know the why. So here's a couple things that have to be avoided when we're dealing with the scriptures because number one is this, the challenges related to these issues is number one, neglecting certain scriptures. We know what it says over here, and I like what it says over here. Well, what about this verse over here? It says also, it talks about the subject. Well, I don't know about this. All I know is I like this one over here. Well, I didn't know that we were allowed to pick and choose. I thought I had to consider all the scriptures that speak to a certain matter. Another uh, thing that happens is this. We assign selective authority to Scripture. Well, it says in this book, yes, but what about over here in this book where it says, well, I don't know, but this book says. So you're like, oh, so now we start ranking certain passages of Scripture have more authority than others. I, I must have missed that verse where it says that we can do that. Because the last I read, it said all Scripture is God-breathed. I didn't know that some of them had more breath than others. And then another one is this, failing to contextualize scripture, as I said, text without context leads to pretext. If you don't consider the context of what is being, of what is said, the context, you can get scripture to take you anywhere you want. I mean, all you have to do is have an agenda and then you can just start lifting sentences. Context is everything. And then the last one is this, people failing to recognize scriptural momentum. What do I mean by that? When the New Testament was, the last book of the New Testament concluded, was written, we don't read that everything the New Testament church was dealing with got resolved. But we can see the momentum of what they were addressing and wanting to get resolved, okay? So not everything got, just because the New Testament got written doesn't mean everybody lived happily ever after. The scripture speaks to momentums that the church was addressing. And some, listen, even now, 2,000 years later, you and I are still addressing the momentums that the scripture established for us to address. Some of those haven't been corrected, but that doesn't mean we get off the hook from addressing them. We still have to consider these things and look at them. So the first thing we're going to look at today is this, it's called racial discrimination. Let's, 
I know that there's a political climate out there. I understand all this tension. I just want to go to the Bible and tell you the world that Jesus stepped into. Can I do that? I'll teach all seven of you and the rest of you can just listen. <laughs> what, what's, what's the world that Jesus inherited so that we can understand the statements that were made, not only by him, but the apostles as well and, as, and, 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 and the other teachings in the New Testament that we can appreciate. So number one was this. Rome viewed anyone outside of Roman culture or Greek culture as a barbarian. Basically is this. If you didn't have a Roman education culture, if you didn't have a Greek culture slash education, then you were a barbarian. Now these are people who come to church and have just accepted Jesus. Do you think that they have just suddenly given that ideology up? They have been taught that since the day they were born. That's what their parents taught them. You've got to get a Roman education culture. You've got to get a Greek education culture. Why? Because you don't want to grow up and be one of those barbarians. No, you can't play with those kids. They're barbarians. They are not cultured like we are. We're cultured. We hang out with people who are like us. So what was this a little bit about? The other side of the coin was this, was the Jewish people. Jewish people viewed anyone who was not a Jew as a pagan. How many can see most of us in this room would be classified as a barbarian pagan? <laughs> I mean, we would be getting it from both sides today. Both of them would be calling us those things. And, this, and sometimes they would just say Gentile. Sometimes, in a nice way, you're a heathen. Now, how, I don't know how you say that's a nice thing. You're a heathen. Okay, let me back it down. You're a pagan. I mean, and here's the thing. you got, you got these two camps, and this is the world that Jesus steps into. How in the world do you fix that? And then they come to church. Those barbarians. You pagans. People, listen, people didn't lose their vocabulary just because they set foot in the church. Because they were raised in this. And so it became a challenge. So let's, let's move on just a little bit uh, further. So Luke writes a w in a way that we don't pick it up because we like, think, we like subject matter to be contained to an article. We're not accustomed to seeing an issue addressed over here, and then over here, and then over here. We just look, you're like, look, just, just write the story and stick to the subject. So we don't see the story the way that Luke tells it. So Luke is showing this, that God is at work among the barbarians. That God is at work among the pagans. And that Jesus came to go outside everybody's box. And he was willing to be the reconciler. So here's what he records in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5, he talks about the tax collector Levi and the other sinners. He went to the house and had dinner with them. These are traitors. They were Jewish people who had given up their nationality and gone to work for the occupying army to serve as tax collectors. And, God, and Jesus is saying this, this is going to be a shocker, he's working among the traitors. Then he talks about the story of the faith of the centurion that we read. In. A guy who's responsible for some of the atrocities that are happening in that nation. He's the leader of the occupying army and God's working in his life. See, I, there's people, I can't see that. He's a bad man. He needs to go back to Rome where he belongs. 
He's a pagan. He needs to get out of here. Then we talk, he, re, he talks about Jesus going up to the Samaritan. And they were okay with Jesus. If you read the story, sometimes familiarity of a story causes us to miss the details. They actually were okay with Jesus until they found out he was going to Jerusalem to worship. See, the Samaritans were considered traitors as well. So they had set up their own temple. And it became a battle. Are you going to worship up here or are you going to worship in Jerusalem? And when Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem to worship, the Samaritans began to come after him and oppose him because they, their attitude was this, oh, so you're better than us. Our place of worship isn't good enough for you. And it got, it got so heated. You can read the story. It got so heated. The disciples, you know, they had done some miracles for Jesus. You know, they, he had empowered them. And they said, do you want us to call down fire and just burn them up right now? Now, there's a great evangelistic tool. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, no. And then, get this, later on, a couple chapters later, in, in Luke chapter 10, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Wow, he's, he's actually saying, I know you think those Samaritans are no good. They came at me with everything. They hated me because I was willing to go to Jerusalem and worship. And they saw that as betrayal. And Jesus tells the story of a parable of a good Samaritan who says, I just want you to know not all Samaritans are bad. There's some good ones out there. And God's working in the Samaritans. And God's using the Samaritans. Then he tells the story of the parable of Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember they're praying? And, he, and Jesus says, God hears the tax collector more than he hears the Pharisee. Man, you talk about a brain stretcher. You got to be kidding me. Do you know that, that he's, a, he's a traitor? Yeah, and he also knows that he is a traitor, and he's standing in the house of God, beating his chest, saying, I'm so unworthy to be here because I've betrayed everything that I stand for, everything I was raised to be. And the Pharisee is standing there trying to justify his righteousness. Then he talks about the story of the little children coming to Jesus. Hey, those, aren't, those all weren't just Jewish kids. They were kids of some of the, of the barbarians and the heathens and the pagans. And Jesus was blessing all the children. Then you read the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Another church. Do you notice Jesus loved traitors? You notice that? I mean, he just, here's another guy. Here's another traitor. And then he tells, the, listen, he tells, he meant, he's the guy who mentions Simon of Cyrene. Jesus was unable to finish carrying the cross. And the Romans grabbed the man out of the crowd and had him finish carrying the cross for Jesus. Simon of Cyrene. See, Cy the reason it's mentioned Cyrene, why does he mention this? He mentioned Cyrene because in that particular day, Cyrene is today modern-day Libya. He was an outsider, man. He just happened to be in that neck of the woods. He was just coming into the city and just found, and he's saying, I got news for you. God used a heathen to help carry the cross. Whenever, when those devoted disciples who said they would die for, they could not be found. God was willing to use a pagan, a heathen, help carry the cross. Then we read that there in Luke 23 that there were criminals on the cross. It doesn't say they were Jewish. It just says that they were criminals. Usually the Bible's pretty clear if it's, if it's a Jewish person. But in this context, it's pretty safe to say that these were not Jewish men that were hanging on the cross with Jesus. And it's interesting to take note that one of the men on the cross asked Jesus for, to have mercy and grace and to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus said to that pagan, 
on the cross who said, I deserve to be here. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now see, these stories don't stand out to us, mainly because of how our brain has been taught and learned and that. But when you, but when you take what Luke wrote and you condense, when people read this, they saw that. And they were like, wow, Jesus took seriously reaching the barbarians. Jesus took seriously reaching the pagans. Yeah, he was reaching Jewish people at the same time, but the activity of God through Jesus was breaking out to all people. And then later on, there was a guy named Paul. He was earlier known as Saul. He was one of the guys who actually perpetrated these kinds of views of of racism and biasness and bigotry. He's the guy who taught about these things. And God changed his life. And what's interesting is, what does a guy who's accepted Jesus, who was steeped in this kind of education, what does he shift to? What's his mentality? We start to read this later in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. This is 49 AD. So this is about 19 years after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And Paul soon, uh, soon after accepted Christ. And by the way, i got to point this out. Paul and Luke are close friends. Luke accepted Jesus because of Paul. So these guys knew what each other was writing because of their friendship. And Paul writes this in 49 AD. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And everybody said amen. Amen. That is written by one of the worst guys of his day. Until Jesus changed his life. Wow. Hey, that's not the only time. Paul, Paul kept preaching this. Because later on in, in, in Colossians, which is 62 AD. So this is 13 years later. He's still hammering this message. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian. <laughs> Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is in all and is in all. Sometimes I get asked this question. Man, I see the bridge is growing. Like, who's your target audience? Who are you chasing after? Who are you trying to win? What's the profile of the person? Is it middle class? Is it educated? Is, is it people with families and children? Is it, you know, who, who's your target audience? Who, what's the profile of the person who attends the bridge? And I always say, they breathe. What do you mean they breathe? I said, I really don't care about their nationality. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't care. I don't care whether they have children or not. I don't care if they're married or not. I don't care if they're a young adult, teenager, child. I don't care if they're a U.S. citizen or not. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care if they speak English or not. If they breathe, I want to reach them. Amen. That's the profile. You say, well, what if they don't breathe? We'll either pray for a resurrection or we'll help you with the funeral. So you might say we even still minister to you when you take your last breath. I'm just, why do we have that attitude? Because that's, now listen to me. Has the church struggled living this out? You better believe it. Probably one of the greatest, and it's probably the only quote I'm going to give you this morning outside of the Bible, is by Martin Luther King. He made this statement when he was in the middle of the civil rights initiatives that he was engaged in. He said this. He said, one of the most segregated hours in American culture is Sunday morning. 
That's true. That was true. Absolutely. I will say we've done a better job. Are we there yet? No. But that doesn't mean the church gets off the hook from still not trying to strive to get it there. Just because it's hard doesn't give us a pass. Well, that's too hard. Well, that's too bad. I feel, I'm sorry that it's hard, but we don't get a pass just because it's hard. In fact, it should cause us to lean all the more on Christ. Amen? And by the way, for the sake of context, you do know that the New Testament was not written. Not one word in the New Testament was written by a Caucasian individual. Some of you need a second to process that. If anybody should be glad about the openness of the gospel to be conclusive, it ought to be us white European ancestry descendants. Because unless Christ had not opened that up to us, most of us in this room would not be here today. And so with that, i got to say that then how can we not practice the same with the thing that was extended to us? Jesus said, come on in. How can we not practice that? And everybody said amen. amen. That, was, that was tough number one. That was tough point number one. Now on to tough point number two. You ready? Yes. Three of you. I, I can count the amens out there, trust me. <laughs> so, now, so now we look at this, the role of women. Luke has a lot to say about the role of women. But again... How it is laid out, we don't see that as easily. It takes some more. So I'm going to get, be giving you some illustrations of these scriptures. But first of all, what's the world that Jesus stepped into when it came to the relationship of women? Well, first of all, Roman culture said this. They said women were to remain under male jurisdiction. They were viewed as property. So even when a woman got divorced from her husband in Rome... If her husband, if her father was still living, she was to go back under the leadership and jurisdiction and authority of her father. She never truly was into, and if her dad had died, then she had to go under the jurisdiction and authority of one of her brothers. They were not allowed to vote or hold office. They could be educated as long as it served the purposes of their husband's agenda. So in other words, I need you to get schooled because when we have people to the house and people that I'm trying to impress, it would help if you could contribute. But it was important that her education not direct her life. It was an education that was, helped, it was designed to help his life. So if, it could, if she could not draw a straight line on how this was going to help her husband, it was usually denied, not allowed to go get the education. Uh, they were a Roman citizen, but only through their father or their husband. So truly, they weren't a Roman citizen. It was only if their husband or their father was a Roman citizen. And then finally, just to kind of give you a picture of what Jesus stepped into in his day, we read in Luke chapter 2, there was a guy who was in charge, and it says Caesar in the days of Caesar Augustus. Remember that? Christmas story? Everybody have a flashback? It's not been that long ago. C Caesar Augustus. He had issued a decree that it was unacceptable for a woman not to be married by age 20 and having children. So if you were 20 years of age or older, not married, having children, he fined you. Until you, you kept paying the fine until you got a family. 
Now, that's the world that Jesus steps into with the Romans. Okay? Then you, by, oh, by the way, if you look at that, can you see that there's a lot of Christians who are more theology, or have, have more Roman theology than Christian theology? <laughs> Boy, that was quiet. <laughs> yeah, some, you start reading that, and you're going, yeah, I know a lot of Christians. They're more Roman in their theology than they are biblical. All right. So, next is this, the Jewish culture. So here's the other side. The Jewish culture, the women were not allowed to testify in court because they were unreliable. They were to refrain from operating a business. Some did, but it was made very difficult on them in Jesus' day for them to operate business. They could not vote or hold office. They were limited in educational opportunities. They were forbidden from the priesthood, and they were limited in their access to temple worship. If you're familiar, you came into the temple, there was the Gentile courtyard, the women's courtyard, and then the men's courtyard, and then the, and then the priest, okay? And so they were marginalized even in the house of God. So here's Jesus coming into the world, and he's got this Roman view of women, and he's, 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 he's got this Jewish view of women, and you're just kind of like, oh man, where does, where, does it, where does Jesus go with this? Right? Because no matter what he does, he's going to be viewed as wrong. He's going to be viewed as doing something outside God's, what people had said was God's normative. So let's look at all the stories that Luke tells us about women. And by the way, it's twice as many stories as the pagans. This is page one. I got page two coming up. In Luke 1, he, said, he says there's an angelic visit to Mary. Well, everybody knows angels don't go show up themselves to, to Mary or to women. He, he shows himself to the men. But the angel shows himself to Mary. Then it says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, that's reserved for the priesthood. And then it says she prophesies. All right, there's some people. That's it. I'm done. I'm not reading the rest of Luke. <laughs> but it says she prophesied. Then we go to Luke 2, and it says there was a prophet, Anna, who gave thanks when she saw the Christ. Then we read that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Critical, because now it says that healing is available to the women. They no longer have to go through a man. They now have direct access to God's healing provision. Then there's the widow's son that's raised from the dead. Then there's Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. What's wrong with him? He's supposed to be anointed by a priest. What do you mean he got anointed by a sinful woman? She has nothing to give him. If he's going to be used in ministry, it must come from the priesthood. God said, watch me use a sinful woman. Then there's the woman who's healed of bleeding. Then there's the, the dead girl who's raised from the dead. Again, the activity of God is no longer confined to come through other people. The women now have direct access to God's activity. Jesus and Mary, or Jesus at Mary and Martha's home. Why is that such a big deal? Everybody knows, you do know Jesus was a single guy. For him to converse, much less go to the house of a woman, was forbidden. And yet, he was... Now, here's what's critical. Jesus kept all those interactions public so that he could not have accusation come against him. Okay? So he just said, listen, I will, he, every time we read a story of Jesus engaging with a woman, it was always in the public eye. That's critical. Jesus had integrity. Come on, everybody, amen that. Amen. All right. Page two. 
Then we read he healed a crippled woman. Then we read the parable of the lost coin. Remember the woman lost the coin? Now Jesus could have used anybody that he wanted in a parable, but he chose to say a woman. Then he talks about the last day's parable. He mentions in that story there will be two women at the mill, and one will be taken and one will be left. Then it talks about the parable of the persistent widow. And then the resurrection and marriage teaching. We say, why did you bring that up? Because there was this uh, theological dilemma. If a woman is married to a man and he dies, and in those days she would marry a brother and then her, or her husband's brother, and he dies, and then she marries the next brother and he dies, and then you start to say, well, you probably don't want to marry her anymore. <laughs> And it, it goes like six times, and then it says, okay, now when she goes to heaven, who's she married to? And Jesus handled the teaching, because it was, it was a theological slash moral dilemma of his day, and Jesus was willing to tackle that. And then we read the story of Jesus noting a widow's offering. Now, th these last few stories are critical. We read here that a girl was used to call out Peter being a follower of Jesus and trying to keep it a secret. And God says, and Luke says, just want to let you know it was a woman who called him out. <laughs> Mr. Rock, I will build my church upon you, has crumbled. <laughs> he says, I bring a servant girl to get in his face and call him out. Then we read that when Jesus died, there were, the women were present. We know John was there, but we don't read about the other disciples. They're, they're gone. But the women are there when Jesus dies. And then we read that when Jesus was buried, it says that they followed Joseph, uh, who, who, was, who was responsible for uh, burying Jesus. It says the women followed him from a distance so that they would know where he was buried, so that when they were allowed to, they could come back to the tomb. So we read that they were present when Jesus got buried. No disciples. Now get this. And then at the resurrection... Who were the first people to discover that Jesus had risen from the dead? Other than the Roman guards. <laughs> okay. The women. And it said the women went and told the disciples. And the disciples didn't believe them, so they had to run to the tomb. Why? Remember this. Because women were not even allowed to testify in court. So when the women told the disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead... They had already profiled the reliability of a woman's conversation by saying, that's impossible, let's go check it out. We're not gonna believe these women. I mean, they can't even testify. It just, and God, can you just see God going, you know what, let's give the women some value here. Let's use them to announce my son's resurrection. Not only are we gonna announce the resurrection, we're gonna return credibility to their story and to their voice. Let's use them. How many know, because God could have used anybody. And yet he chose. So we see this. I've given you two slides here filled with stories. When people read the Gospel of Luke, they saw that. Like, man, Jesus is like totally validating women and their role and their expression. He is saying they are no longer in the courtyard at a distance. They have access to the holies of holies, and God is there for them. God hears. Them. And listen, he even calls one a prophet. God's, God has offices for them. Now, so let me take you to a couple things. How did, how did we get all this tension surrounding women in ministry or whatever you want to call it? How did we even get here? 
Well, because when you go back to the New Old Testament, it says that the woman was created as a helpmate, to be a helper. That means that she knows something that he doesn't know. Come on, women. And you said? It means that she sees something he can't see. It means that she can do something he can't do. So what God did was that, you know, Adam, you're great, but I'm going to create another individual who has a different skill set that you don't have. And it is in both of your interests to have a collaborative effort. Because in that collaborative effort, you both do better. So make it, and it did, it did work. In fact, it shows you, we, we sometimes miss this in the story. She had such credibility. Now, it led to the fall of man, but she had such credibility that she told her husband to eat of the tree, and he did. That shows you she had credibility with him. Now, granted... The story should have been checked out. <laughs> but we sometimes miss the fact that he was willing, willing to go, okay, because there was this equal, I have your back, you have my back. I would never do that. I don't think you would. And, and it led to this, this chasm and this thing called sin. And then in Genesis 13, or chapter 3, we start reading the consequences of that fall. And this is what he says to the woman in, in, in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Unless you get an epidural. <laughs> your Some of you men went, huh? Ask your wife. Your Some guys are Googling it right now. Epidural. <laughs> your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Key phrase there. So what, what, what does it mean, her desire will be for her, your husband? The word desire means to dominate. So no longer is she looking to collaborate. She is taking the position of, I'm going to tell you the view that you need to have. <coughs> Don't any man say amen. <laughs> that is marital advice 101 Sunday morning from your pastor. Don't go there. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. So her, so her desire is always going to be to get her way. And then, look at what it says. And, and it says, he will rule over you. And his desire is, I'm just going to control the situation. I'm going to be Mr. Alpha. Okay? I hear you, but we're not going that way. I'm going to control. And so you have this war now. Trying to dominate. Try to control. Try to dominate. Try to control. Dominate. Control. Dominate. Control. And it was all designed to be a collaborative effort. If one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. I mean, I, I'll say this, but I'm 10 times better because of her. Because if one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. I, I'm pretty sure, I just want to make sure I'm getting it right. <laughs> Asking for permission that I make her 10 times better. We function best when it's collaborative. But one, so we, we give this uh, inventory to couples who get married. And, and even for other couples who, who may be in different phases of life, it's called preparing and rich. And it's a, great, it's a great marital tool. 
So they're able to phrase the questions based on your situation, so whether you're married or not married, children or not, and it takes in consideration your age, and it can adjust the questions. And, what it, and one of the issues is it talks a little bit about this in there. We get some results out of it. So that we're not playing 20 questions. We can just dive into exactly where we need to be to help a couple. And sometimes you, you pick up in that assessment that one person or both have a control issue. And, it's, and they'll sometimes say, yeah, it's very important for me to, to uh, get my way. And I, I, I don't know what she says, but I always say this, okay? I always tell them, I say, there's a way that you can always be sure that you get your way. And they're like, really? Yeah, stay single. <laughs> It's never an argument. <laughs> yep. It's your way. You need to find somebody that you don't mind deferring to. You're okay with it. Yeah, I know what I want. But I also want her to be happy. I'll give up what I want because her happiness is more important than me getting my way. The ability to defer, why? Because it's supposed to be a collaborative. The, uh, yesterday, we got home late Friday night. Yesterday morning, my uh, grandson wanted to go out and throw the football. So, you know, I'm coming off of getting home late Friday night and trying to get some things put together for today. So we went outside and we're throwing the football. And this arm, uh, since I've turned 40, <laughs> I'm 42. And, uh, I've got, I, got I, I have like a 30 minute throw arm, okay? After 30 minutes, you know, the arm's done. And, and, I, and I said to my grandson, hey, is that enough? Nope, want to keep throwing. Okay, can you move a little closer? <laughs> you know, and uh, we stayed out there another 15 minutes throwing the ball, you know, just doing it. What, why did, I was, my arm was cooked, man. I don't mind telling you, I was done. But why, why, did, I, why did I stay another 15 minutes? When I, how many know, I actually had the authority to say, hey, we're done, let's go in. Why did I stay out there? Because his joy was more important to me than my comfort. It's using your authority not to always get your way, but using that authority to say, I have the ability to make their world better. I'm more interested in making their world better than I am in getting my way. But sin makes us compete with one another, even to a person that we said, I do. We compete. Now, so where, does, where, did, where did the New Testament take this after all this? Well, this is a passage of scripture that I think it's important to highlight. After Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. It's kind of a continuation of the book of Luke. And there's a passage here that we often miss because of familiarity we're so in a rush to get to acts chapter 2 because that's where the holy spirit was poured out we actually lose the significance of this passage acts chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 let me read it when they arrived this is jesus has ascended and he said i want you to go pray until the holy spirit comes when they had arrived they went upstairs to the room where they were staying those present were peter john james and andrew philip and thomas bartholomew and matthew james son of alphaeus and simon the zealot and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is crucial because this is the first time that we read in the New Testament the men and the women were all in the same room praying together because when they went to the temple, they all had their own separate courtyards. Some of you forgot that. This is a first. Huh. They got it. God was done with this. Well, you're over here. And you're over there. They all went to this. They had never. This was a first for all of them. And what was God's response to that? Acts chapter 2. Here comes the. It's amazing when we get things right, what God gives us. He says, you got that right, now I can give you the Holy Spirit. Because you got this right. I'm through with you praying in divided fashion. I want you to start praying together. Come on, everybody. Every man. So where else does this go? Well, now we jump to Romans chapter 16. This is 57 AD. This is, this is 27 years after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And this is, listen, th what's crucial here is this. This is Paul, who used to be known as Saul. When he, before he converted to Christ, it was his job to teach people about these racial divisions and these male-female divisions as it related to spirituality. That was his job. In fact, he was so convincing and so powerful in his teaching, he had a piece of paper that said, if you don't agree with him, he can drag you out of your house and have you executed. So this guy was not just a person who believed it. He was pushing this on people and forcing people to take it. And now I want you to see what God has done. We read about what God did in his mind as it relates to race. I want you to see what God did as it relates to him, as it relates to women. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chentria. A deacon? Trust me, Phoebe was not a male name. <laughs> He's a, now here's the thing. They didn't have elections. Paul appointed. Paul appoints a woman as deacon in Rome. Wow. Then in Romans 16, verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia. We believe these were husband and wife. Andronicus being the man, Junia being the wife. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. So these people were in Christ before Paul and Paul says they're both apostles. Do you see that? Wow, we have a woman apostle in Rome. Hmm. Now I know what everybody's thinking. I'm just waiting for you to get to 1 Timothy, Pastor. Because that's where all the way to Scripture rides right now. No, it's not where all the way to Scripture rides. It is just another passage that we have to consider. But these passages have just as much weight as Timothy does. Now, I'm going to say this. Remember I said, be careful. Text without context leads to pretext. Yes. Remember that? Yes. It's a, that's why I put the dates up. Okay? It's important to know when these things were being instituted and by whom. And so then we go to 1 Timothy. And he writes the book mainly to Timothy, who is the pastor. This is 65 AD. So this is eight years later. 
After 57 AD, he's working with the church in Rome, and he's saying some of the things that he does. And now he's writing to the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is the pastor. And these are the passages that generally get all the way, and I mean all the way. The others are neglected. They're not even mentioned. Some of you probably said, I have never seen those scriptures in Rome, or on Romans. Exactly. That's my point. Because it doesn't agree with something that's already been determined in a person's mind. That's why. So now we're in 65 AD. He's writing to Timothy. And Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus. And things aren't going well in Ephesus with Timothy as the pastor. The church is about to implode. And so Paul writes to him. And you say, well, how do you know that? Let me, let me read to you. Because he's talking to Timothy about the qualifications for leadership. He says, number one, he must not be given to drunkenness. You mean I actually got to tell you that? <laughs> that a church leader getting drunk is not a good idea. Not quarrelsome. Not violent. Wow, so you, you got leaders who go violent? And they're quarreling? Must, must not be a lover of money. Must manage his family well. Must not be a recent convert. Must have a good reputation with outsiders. He's saying that because these are the people that he's let in as leaders. And the church is imploding. And so he is now bringing the church under correction. And he's really correcting Timothy more harsh then the church. In fact, if you go on into the book of 1 Timothy, later on it says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Well, what does that tell you what's going on in the church? Well, he, well, he, well, he, well, he, there's all his fingers. And Timothy's trying to decide, who do I believe? And he says, unless there's two or three witnesses, you don't entertain the accusation. And then, right after that, this is what he says. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and his elect angels. To put these, to practice these things without partiality. What does that tell you Timothy's doing? Well, he's a friend. Well, dude, that's my brother. That's my sister-in-law. I ain't messing with her. And, I, and I'm just telling you if, you, if you look at Timothy, you start to see Paul is leaning into Timothy and he's basically saying this. I started that church and I know what that church is capable of. And you need to grow up and be the pastor. And start doing what I put you there to do. You need to stop caving in and you need to start preaching the gospel and you need to start getting yourself leaders with integrity. And it's your job to call them out when they don't have it. He's basically saying, Timothy, grow up. That's the, when you read it, you go, yeah, I can see that there. That's the context of what is going on. And so what we read on down is this, as we continue to look at this, it appears that the church is struggling to put into practice the Christian teachings under, teach, under Timothy's leadership. They have tried to start bringing these changes, but the weak leadership of Timothy is causing extreme problems. And so now it's, it's a mess. And so the church in Ephesus is given a much more stringent set of guidelines to unify them. And let me explain it this way. We have this today. We're a part of the Assemblies of God fellowship. We're a church that belongs in the Assemblies of God. 
when a church in the assemblies of God gets in trouble, and there's a variety of things that I could describe what that looks like, they can remove the autonomy of the church being controlled by local leadership, and the district will become the leaders and take control to iron out the differences and bring stability and bring control and bring some help. And when that is done, the district will return the church back to local leadership. So we even practice this today. When a church hits a point where things aren't going well, for whatever reason, the district says, we're going to bring you under leader. We're going to give you a set of guidelines that is not normative for the other churches, but to get you through this crisis, this is what we have to do. So now we're the authority. But the intent is to move you back to health so that you can have your own local leader. Folks, we still practice this today. It's not new. And I say that so that we can understand that I never want to stand before God and know something and, teach, and not teach these things and just tell God, the reason I didn't teach on it, God, was because I was afraid of the reaction I'd get from people. That makes me Timothy. Not happening, man. Not happening. And the other part is I see scripture as God saying, come one, come all. I have a calling for every one of you in your life, in the direction, in the ministry. And here's the thing. We're not here to lord our authority over one another. We are here to work collaboratively with one another. Because let me tell you, the byproduct is this. If we don't work well together, there are people who will never step a foot into eternity knowing Jesus. But if we work together well and we collaborate well, there are not, listen, people and families that will be radically transformed by the power of the gospel. But it all begins with us. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet. Come on. Can you just take a minute to lift your hands and just praise him this morning? Come on, just, just a few seconds. I want you to praise him for the fact that God has let us in. You know what? He expects us to hold the door open the way we found it for open for us. He expects us to hold that door open. Come on, man. Let's praise him right now. Listen, I know that I've run over and I'm going to ask. We're just going to just move through a couple things quickly. I'm going to ask some of those prayer teams that Pastor Lisa has asked to help at the end of the service. Would you uh, come right now and just stand across the front? Because as we wrap up the service, we always want to give opportunity for people to be ministered to. Listen, I know that there's no way I can preach on every subject matter, every topic, every issue. But I can tell you this. Jesus is always ready to minister to you wherever you are. And God uses people. And so as we sing the song, we sang, that was one of the last songs we sang. I love that. He was the healer then, he's the healer now. He's the provider then, he's the provider now. I love that. And I want us to sing that segment of uh, that song that we learned today. And if you have a need, step into the aisle, come, let people pray over you, and then we're gonna dismiss the rest of the congregation. But come on, let's sing it now.